Welcome back to the Locust Grove podcast. We are so glad that you decided to join us again this week as we continue our series, Tough Questions. This week, we began studying a lengthy passage in John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. This is the account of Lazarus being raised from the dead, but as we will see beginning this week, there is so much for us to learn from this account about our lives in a very practical and applicable way. And so as we study this story, you will see that we are asking and answering the question, who has the final word? Yes, of course, we see Jesus has the final word over death, but we're actually going to see that Jesus has the final word over everything that happens in our life. And we'll see in this account the purpose of God, the pain of the sisters, and ultimately the power of Christ. We hope that you enjoy week one of this sermon. It's, uh, it's not news to anyone in this room, I don't believe, um, that we are going to face hardships uh, in life. Right? We, we are all familiar with, um, with difficulties, with going through the storms of life, uh, dealing with difficult seasons and circumstances. Right? I, mean, I mean, all of us know what it's like to uh, sort of be on the proverbial mountaintop and then suffer through the valleys of life. And there's this thing about hardships, right? Hard, hardships are not prejudiced. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter what your political positions are. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't, know, it doesn't matter what your education level is. We all face hardships, right? Now, different, hard, or different people face different types of hardships, but, but we all know what struggle looks like, right? It's been, been said a number of times. I've heard it a number of times. I'm sure that you have too. Um, you can pretty much count on either you're going into a hardship, you're in a hardship, or you're coming out of one, right? That's just sort of the natural cycle of our, of our lives. And I talk about hardships not being prejudiced, but... We know as Christians that you can be a Christian and you still face hardships just like a non-Christian will face hardships. And so we all deal with these seasons of life. And as we think about these seasons of life, you may be going through a hardship right now, right? You may be in the midst of a storm right now. But as we think about these seasons, we acknowledge that there are many times, even if we're Christians... There are many times when we end up feeling alone, when we feel hopeless or, or desperate or confused, right? We, we may feel any number of emotions when life gets tough. And so sometimes even as Christians, we, we wonder, who can we turn to in the midst of these storms? Where, where can we go? Who, who is able to fix the problems that I'm facing? Now, 95% of you know where I'm going with this, right? But there's more than just the temporary afflictions that we face, right? There's more than just these mountain peaks and these low valleys that we deal with in, in this life. There is still yet another dark cloud that hangs over every one of us. Listen, whether your life is going really good right now or whether it's going really bad right now, we all face the same reality. That reality is death, right? It doesn't matter how good life is going right now, death is still a reality. 
doesn't matter how bad life is going. Death is the reality that we all face. Ever since the fall of Adam, men and women, yes, we have encountered a number of hardships. Right? Even, even when you study the history of the Bible, when you study the history of the world at large, we see a number of hardships and struggles that mankind has faced. But death is the ultimate challenge. And the reason it's the ultimate challenge is because it's final, right? There's a finality to death. And so whether we think about our storms or our hardships in terms of the temporal or in terms of the eternal, the biggest question that we must have answered is who has the final word? Who has the final word? Yes, over our temporary afflictions, over the hardships that we face in this life, but ultimately who has the final word over death? Now, again, like I say, 95% of you know exactly where I'm going with this. This morning we are in John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Now I'm going to be very transparent with you this morning. Getting through verse 44 is an optimistic outlook for this sermon. Uh, but it's good to have goals in life, right? And so our goal this morning is to get through verse 44, but if we don't, uh, if we don't make it all the way, uh, the rest of the passage will still be there for us uh, next week, uh, Lord willing. So in, in John chapter 11, this is, this is a very common story. Right, if you've spent any amount of time in church, you're probably familiar with this story. Even people who haven't spent any time in church are familiar with this story. What we have in this account is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so, yes, absolutely, spoiler alert, you don't have to wait till the end. Jesus is the one who has the final word, right? We see in this story, Jesus is the one who has power over death. He has the final word over death. But here's the thing. Sometimes, even as Christians, when we start studying God's Word, when, we, when we're seeing the life of Christ and we're seeing these, these miracles, these audacious miracles, it seems like that Jesus is performing. These, these unfathomable works that, that Jesus is doing on this earth. As believers, we, we probably don't have any, any difficulty accepting those. But sometimes it can feel a little bit difficult to relate to these miracles. right? We, we can all agree. I can say this morning that Jesus has the final word over death. And I hope every one of you can say yes and amen. Right? We believe that. We believe that yes, Lazarus was physically dead. He was in the tomb for four days. Jesus shows up. They roll the stone from in front of the tomb. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And here comes Lazarus. Right? We, we can all believe that that literally, historically actually happened. But what does it mean for me and you practically? Now, yes, we're going to eventually get to the big picture here and we're going to talk about, about Jesus' eternal victory over death. But we've also talked about the temporal hardships that we all face, right? And so what do these grand miracles have to say to you and I on a day-to-day -day basis when we're, going on, when we're going through the valleys and when we're ascending to the mountaintops of life? And I think that, that the Bible here in John chapter 11 presents us with this very clear and relatable story. Now, I've already sort of told you what, what happens here is a brief overview. Uh, but just to make sure we've got this situated in the immediate context, thinking back to last week as we wrapped up John chapter 10, what we saw at the end of John chapter 10 is Jesus makes the most clear claim of Messiahship that He's made in the whole Gospel of John. 
Right? There's, this, there's this confrontation of the Jews. They surround him. Right? The tensions are high. The Jews are ready to do something about this problem. They want this straightforward answer. Now, maybe Jesus isn't as straightforward still as they would have liked for him to be, but Jesus has made it very clear at the end of John chapter 10 that yes, indeed, I am the Messiah. Right, So much so that they're ready to stone Him. We see at the end of John chapter 10, Jesus evades their, their anger. He retreats back to the other side of the Jordan. Once He's on the other side of the Jordan, we see that the number of His followers continues to grow. People are continuing to believe in Him because of His works and because of the things that He has said. And so that's where we pick up here in John chapter 11. Jesus is back on the other side of the Jordan and He gets word from some close friends. John chapter 11 beginning in verse 1. Since since I'm a little unsure about how far we'll make it, we're going to break this down into sections. We're just going to begin with the first 16 verses this morning. John chapter 11 verse 1. Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death. Literally, that is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go, that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Let's pray together. Lord, we believe and confess with all of our hearts that this is indeed your word, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, that it is profitable for all that we could possibly need. So God, as we take your word this morning, as we seek to rightly divide it for its truth, Lord, may we be transformed by it. Lord, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us, that you might be glorified in and through us, that we might leave this place as faithful servants, on mission for you, that your kingdom might be expanded here on earth as it is in heaven. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Now, as I mentioned, sometimes when we think about these almost inconceivable miracles, it, it's, it can be tough to, to really relate to them. Now, again, we haven't read the whole story, but I've already spoiled the ending for you. Uh, Jesus shows up. He raises Lazarus 
from the dead. And so really this morning, we're, we're wanting to think about how this relates to us. And we want to think about this in, in two different ways. Uh, we're really probably three different ways. Ultimately, we want to think about how this relates to us eternally. But we want to think about how this relates to us personally and the hardships that we face. But we also want to think about how this relates to us as a church corporately. Right? How should this influence how we act and how we think and what we do as a church alongside of how it should, how it should um, sort of transform us and teach us and guide us in dealing with difficult times in life? So in, in this whole account, we see a really clear answer to who has the final word. Specifically, yes, the final word over death. But by the time we get to the end of verse 44, we're going to have seen really, I think, three, three truths. We're going to see the purpose of God. That's what we see in these first 16 verses we're going to look at here in just a moment. We're also going to see the pain of the sisters. But finally, we're going to see the power of Christ. And so let's begin here with these first 16 verses that we've just read. And let's consider for a moment the purpose of God. I think that the purpose of God is clearly on display in these verses that we've just read. Now, I think there's actually three aspects of God's purposes that we can identify in this passage. First, if you'll draw your attention to verse 4. Verse 4, we see this unmistakable purpose of God. And that is the glory of the Son. You see, the purpose of God is the glory of the Son. I would argue this might be the most important aspect for us to see concerning the purposes of God. The, the first and foremost, the primary purpose here is the glory of the Son. Now, we, as we read Jesus' words here, we, we can obviously understand that Jesus does not mean that this sickness is not fatal. The sickness is obviously fatal. Lazarus dies. He's wrapped in his grave clothes and he's put in the tomb and he's there for four days. So long, in fact, that the sisters say to Jesus when he says, roll back the tomb here in just a few verses, they're going to be like, hey, hey, he's going to smell bad. Okay, this is how dead he is. Dead to the point that he is going to start smelling bad. So, so it is obviously, Jesus obviously doesn't mean that, that the sickness isn't fatal. But his point is that it will not ultimately end in death. And the purpose of this sickness not ending in death isn't for the good of Lazarus. It's for the glory of the Son. That's why Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's for the glory of the Son. We, we have to make sure that we're, we're understanding this here. Now, I think it might be helpful for us even to think back to John chapter 9, right? Remember what happens in John chapter 9? Jesus heals the man that is born blind. Right? And what do we learn in this passage about the man who is born blind? Why is he born blind? He's born blind so that the works of God might be revealed through his blindness. Right? He, he is born blind so that God might be glorified, so that the Son might be glorified through this affliction. Now here's where it becomes really important for us to make sure we have a proper understanding of glory. Right? Sometimes this is one of those words that just sort of becomes Christianese, right? It's a church word. Right? We'll, we'll talk about glory all the time, right? Every, every time we gather, we can talk about, yeah, hey, we want God's glory, right? We want, we want God to be glorified. We want, we want Jesus to be glorified. But what does that really mean? Right? If, 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 if I just said to you this morning, what, 
What is God's glory? What does it mean for God to be glorified? Right? If I just stopped and I said the purpose of God is the glory of the Son, how would you define glory? Now, there's a couple different ways we use the term glory in English, and actually they're very similar to the same way they're used in Greek. Yes, to glorify God is the glory of God is to the result of the praise of God. Okay, so sometimes when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about God getting the praise that He deserves, right? About Jesus getting the praise that is rightfully His. And so, yes, that is a definition of, of glory, but it's not the definition being used here. So let's make sure we're careful to understand this. The death of Lazarus is going to prove to be to God's glory. We're going to see that clearly, but not in order that God may be glorified as in praised. Now, it's helpful here to understand some of John's usage. Now, when John is using the term glory here, he's talking about the revelation of God. So now see we have two different aspects of God's glory. We have the praise of God and we have the revelation of God. And so God... God's glory results in the praise of God, but also when we talk about God's glory, we're talking about the revelation of God to man. And when John uses the word glory almost exclusively in his gospel, he is talking about the revelation of God. So let me try to simplify this as much as I possibly can. When we talk about the glory of God and the glory of Christ in this passage, what John is telling us, is that God's chief purpose in this whole account is that God would be revealed through the Son. That's that's what He means by by glory, by being glorified here. It is is the revelation of God, right? It is His self-disclosure. And so here here is the theological truth that we can take from this. God's self-disclosure, that is His revelation of Himself, takes place primarily in the Son. Okay, now listen, this is the revelation of God, right? God is revealed through this Word. God is revealed through the Old Testament, right? Through the law, through the prophets, through the writings, through the wisdom literature. Yes, in all of those ways, God is revealed. When you walk outside today and you see His creation, God is revealed in that creation. But God is primarily revealed to us through the Son. If you want to know about God, get to know the Son. If you want to begin to learn the depths of who God is, get to know the Son. And that is what is happening in this passage. Yes, God is going to get the praise. This is ultimately going to end in His praise. But the chief purpose of God is to reveal Himself through the power of the Son over death. God is showing us Himself in this passage. God is showing us who He is and therefore showing us who Christ is. So we can say this and we can believe it, right? But we're still asking this question of practicality. And so, So what does God's purpose to bring glory to Himself through the Son have to do with you and I practically? What does His purpose of revealing Himself through Jesus have to do with you and I on a day-to-day basis? 
When you're dealing with the hardships of life, when you're dealing with doctor office visits, sickness, when you're, when you're dealing with the back-to-school blues, right? When you're dealing with all of this stuff that, that are, that's very real and present, right? Maybe in the grand scheme of eternity, it is insignificant. But to you in this moment, it is not insignificant. Because you hurt, there's pain, there's suffering, there's depression, there's worry, there's questions being asked. And so what does this great theological truth that, yes, hopefully we can all affirm together saying yes and amen this morning, but what does it have to do with you and I practically? And here it is. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens by chance. There is no mountaintop in your life and there is no valley in your life that is not without purpose now just allow that again this this isn't like i mean if you were looking for some new revelation from me that you'd never heard this morning you're probably going to leave disappointed right but i believe with all my heart god wants us to hear this this morning nothing happens to you without purpose and this applies both personally and corporately Has this church had difficult days in its past? Yes. I don't know any church that hasn't. I've got friends that are six months into a church plant. Guess what? They've had difficult days over those six months. Can I say to you that it is not without purpose? Listen, whether it's sorrow, sickness, or death, nothing happens to you that God does not permit for a reason. And here's what we can... What we can draw from this, you will encounter no situation in life in which God cannot be glorified. And so now let's put these two truths together. Nothing happens to you by chance. Nothing. Losing your job, losing your health. None of it happens to you by chance. And there is nothing that happens to you in which God cannot be glorified. Listen, it doesn't matter if it's an impossible boss. It doesn't matter if you're dealing with debilitating debt. If you're in a dysfunctional family. If you're in a loveless marriage. And these are all all difficult situations. These are all things that affect us deeply. But in every situation, God can be glorified. In every situation, God can be glorified. And here's the thing. Every situation that I've, that I've mentioned already, some of, you, some of you have dealt with it or are dealing with it. You know what it means to have a terrible boss or employees or co-workers or whatever the case may be. Many of you know what it's like to be in a dysfunctional family or from a dysfunctional family. God forbid, many of you know what it's like to be in a marriage that is loveless. You know what it's like to be in debt up to your eyeballs. And here's the problem. The problem isn't that God has allowed us to endure this. It's not that God is the problem isn't that God has put you in this situation. The problem is always our response to the situation. Now listen, don't get me wrong. You may very well be in a dysfunctional family because you're the one that's dysfunctional. Right? You may very well have a terrible boss because you're a terrible employee. Right? You may have responsibility in this. Your marriage may be loveless because you are loveless. 
You may be in debt because you were spending way too much time trying to keep up with the Joneses. And so you may have responsibility in this. But it doesn't mean that it wasn't under, it's not occurring under the sovereignty of God. That doesn't mean that it's not happening because God has, has, has allowed it to happen. He is allowing it to happen, and if He's allowing it to happen, that means that He can be glorified in it. And so here's the problem. It's always our response to the situation. It's not God's fault for letting us into the situation. It's not God's fault for letting the storm Blow into our lives. I mean, here's the thing. Every storm you and I face is the result of sin. Now, now hear me clearly. It may not always be your sin, but it's someone else's sin, right? And we can be negatively affected by someone else's sin. Now, a lot of times it probably is our sin. But ever since the fall of Adam, the reason that men and women have had suffering, the reason we've had pain, the reason we've, we've had difficult times in life is because of sin. Whether it's ours or someone else's, it's a result of sin. And so God still allows it, and His sovereignty allows it, but it's because He can be glorified in it. And so our problem is the response. And here's the way we respond. What's the fastest way out? How quickly can I get a transfer to a, to a different department? How quickly can I find a new job? How quickly can I get rich quick so I can get out of debt? How quickly can I move away from my family that is so dysfunctional? How quickly can I get a divorce? How quickly can I figure out how to get away from this loveless marriage without being judged by the rest of my family and my church? How fast can I get away? The storm comes, how fast can I get out of it? I'm using some specific examples, but, but listen, I don't have to use your example for you to know what storm you're going through and for you to understand the fault and the way we respond to storms. So sometimes it's, what's the fastest way out? But then other times we ask the question, how can I fix this? Right? Maybe we acknowledge our responsibility in being in debilitating debt. Maybe we acknowledge our responsibility in a family or in a marriage or whatever the case may be. And so then we just say, how do I fix this? What do I need to do? And for the Christian, a lot of times it's like, well, I need to go to church more. I'm going to have to start reading my Bible instead of twice a day, four times a day, right? Instead of 20 minutes in prayer, 25 minutes in prayer. These are the things I need to do to fix this. Church, it's still the wrong response. And I'm not saying don't read your Bible more. I'm not saying don't pray more. I'm not saying don't come to church more. But I'm saying you've got to understand why you're doing it. I'm saying that there's got to be some sort of heart change, some sort of change in your intent behind doing these things. You see, we ask all of these questions about how we can get out of the storms in life, and all the while, the only question we should really be asking is how can God be glorified in this situation? Regardless of what it is. Regardless of how difficult the season is. Regardless of how bad yesterday was. How can God be glorified in this? And I think this is really the definition of Christian maturity. Can I, can I just attempt a, a simple definition, explanation maybe even of Christian maturity? Christian maturity is learning to look at a situation and knowing that whatever you face, you face it so that God can be glorified through you. That is the mark of Christian maturity. When I look at the good times in life, when I look at the bad times in life, the hardships of life, 
I know that God can be glorified in this situation. Now, I already know what Satan will try to convince you of. He might already be doing it and doing it successfully. Maybe, maybe you're already asking the question, doesn't this just make me some kind of pawn in God's cosmic chess game? I mean, it seems like a fair question. If, if I'm having to endure these hardships so that God will be glorified, doesn't that just make me some kind of pawn that God doesn't really care about and that He's just using for His own good? But that's what Satan wants to convince us of. But it's actually not the case at all. As a matter of fact, I believe that this passage shows us that the glory of God and the love of God are not at odds. Now, if you're asking that question, does this not just make me a pawn in God's cosmic chess game, really what you're asking is, okay, God is sovereign and has control over all things, but does God really love me? That's what that question boils down to. And Satan is really okay if you accept the sovereignty of God as long as you doubt the love of God. And he's actually okay if you acknowledge the love of God but reject the sovereignty of God. If He can get you to think that these attributes of God are at odds with one another, then He's going to leave you pretty confused about who God is and about what your relationship with God should look like. And so the glory of God and the love of God are not at odds in this passage. I want you to notice we're moving on now to verse 5. Jesus stays... Right? He hears the, the one he loves. Right? They don't even send name that is Lazarus. Mary and Martha want you to know that the one you love, and he's already going to know it's Lazarus, is really sick. And he hears that Lazarus is really sick. And what does he do? Kicks back for two days. He stays for two days. But notice why he stays. Yes, we've already seen the glory of God. But he also stays for the love of this family. We see this play out in verse 5. So we know that one of the purposes of God is the glory of the Son, but the second purpose of God is also for the good of those who the Son loves. And so now we see even these difficult situations, yes, they're for the glory of God, but they're also for the good of those who the Son loves. This is for the good of the disciples. It's for the good of Martha and Mary. It's for ultimately the good of Lazarus. It's for the good of those who have just believed in Him on the other side of the Jordan. This is for the good of those who Jesus loves. And so His glory and His love, His, His power and His love are not at odds. They're not enemies. And so we must reject the temptation to pit the two against each other. We have seen that God's glory is chiefly displayed in the Son, but now we see that God's glory, that, that God's love is, excuse me, that His glory is also displayed in His bottomless love for His people. So His glory is displayed in the Son, and His glory is displayed in His endless, His bottomless love for His people. But listen, we, this, is, this, is, this right here is the reason I acknowledge that we're not getting through 44 verses this morning. Because I realize we, we actually have to acknowledge, embrace even the complexity of this situation. 
God, again, I want to be careful about just proclaiming theological truths and then just walking away and saying, okay, you should feel better about it. Because these theological truths should be influencing you and I practically on a day-to-day basis. And so we really have to embrace the difficulty, the complexity here. Again, Jesus delays two days before going. The one He loves is sick. This family He loves is hurting. And Jesus waits two days. So is it unloving? Is it unloving? Listen, let's, let's, let's put ourselves in the shoes of Mary and Martha for just a few minutes. And I'll talk about this a little bit more next week. I, I think we have to be careful trying to overinterpret Mary and Martha's actions and what they say here. Sometimes we get totally off track from the main purpose of this text by worrying too much about what was really going through Mary and Martha's mind. I think there's a lot to learn from them, absolutely. But let's try to put ourselves in their shoes for just a moment. Now it is likely, if you do the math, even if Jesus had left right when He got word, Lazarus would have already been dead by the time He got there. No doubt. Mary and Martha can probably figure that out themselves. But the point remains, if you were in Mary and Martha's shoes, you know that Lazarus is sick and dying. And you know that the only hope is Jesus. And so you send word to Jesus. And then Jesus shows up four days late and you find out He got word. And He just hangs out for two days. That's going to hurt. Even if you look back and you say, well, you know, Lord, you, you wouldn't have been able to make it here in time anyway. You're still going to want to know. You're still going to feel like you're, you're going to have this feeling of, of, of rejection. You're going to feel like, I mean, Jesus, did you betray us? You're going to feel angry. You're going to feel hurt. We needed you, Lord, and you waited two days. And we've probably all had these kind of feelings in our own struggles, right? Lord, it's, it's been a long, hard road. And I have called out to you and called out to you and called out to you, but you're just waiting. And I feel like nothing's changing. I feel like you're not hearing me. I feel like you're not there, like you don't care, like you don't love me. Do you notice the common denominator in everything that I'm saying? Feel. Feel. Felt betrayal. Felt anger. Felt bitterness. Felt confusion. Here's what I want you to take away from this this morning. Our feelings, my feelings and your feelings, are pathological liars. They're pathological liars. Our feelings are not infallible. Our feelings are with error. Our feelings are with fault. You realize as a result of the fall of man, we are still imperfect. And our feelings are imperfect. And our feelings are pathological liars. Now I'm not saying you, that they will not sometimes benefit you. They absolutely will. But you have to be careful because there are so many times that your feelings will lie to you. Do you not see what's happened in our culture? 
we have a problem of trusting our feelings and culture way too much. Do you realize the reason we have same-sex marriage is because feelings have become an authority for some people? The reason gender dysphoria exists, the reason people are going through surgeries to change their physical anatomy is because they have given all authority to their feelings. You think about our culture and how driven it is by the authority of our feelings. When election time rolls around, guess what politicians on all sides of the aisle are going to do? Appeal to your feelings and try to convince you that your feelings are the authority. This is an ethical issue in our culture. This is an ethical issue in our society. If you spend any time studying ethics at all, you will begin to understand the devastating effect that, we, that our feelings have had on us and on our culture as a whole. Your feelings are pathological liars. Your feelings will tell you that something feels good that is sinful and an affront to God. We cannot trust our feelings. Your feelings say, Jesus doesn't love me. Your feelings say, see, He won't come. Your feelings say, He's not going to act when I need Him to act. Don't trust your feelings. And here is the root of the problem. It's really not that complicated, but for some reason we just can't see it. We have allowed our feelings to begin to shape truth rather than the truth shape our feelings. I promise you, if you stop spending serious time in this word right here, your feelings are going to begin to influence what you believe about this word instead of this word influencing your feelings. If you want your feelings to become more trustworthy, get closer to Jesus. If you, want to, if you want to be able to trust your feelings more, spend more time with Him in His Word. We have to let the truth shape our emotions, not our emotions shape the truth. It is a problem in society, and maybe you think I'm preaching to the choir this morning, and maybe I have so far, but I promise, just wait, I'm coming for you too. Because it's a problem that's made its way into the church. Do you know where liberal theology comes from in church? The authority of feelings. Do you know where legalism comes from in church? The authority of feelings. You're kidding yourself if you don't think that the Jews felt like what they were doing was right. They were sincere in their desire to kill Jesus because it felt like the right thing to do. Because their legalism had formed their feelings rather than the truth of God forming their feelings. Right? Emotions, the things that happen in society begin to, to affect our feelings and we begin to give our, our feelings some sort of authority and so we compromise our doctrine. Happens up and down the line. All kinds of churches. New churches, old churches, middle of the road churches. 
Methodist churches, Presbyterian churches, Baptist churches. Because feelings become the authority. And I want you to see, I'm not trying to make a big deal out of a small thing in this text. I just think it's so significant. Because Jesus is actually about to follow it up with this light and darkness thing again. I want you to see the danger of your feelings on both sides of the spectrum. You, you, may have, you may have no desire. It may not be a risk for you at all to become liberal theologically because of your feelings. It may be a risk for you to lose your missional heart and mindset because of your legalistic feelings. Guilty. It's happened to me. I pray it doesn't happen again, but it very well may if I'm not consistent in making sure that I'm allowing the truth to shape my feelings. But see this. This is going to continue to play out. Verses 9 through 11. We see this use of light and darkness again. And I've said this already. We see it time and time again in the Gospel of John. When John's talking about light and darkness, he's not just talking about physical time. Most of the time it probably is physical time, but his primary emphasis is on the spiritual. And that's exactly what he's doing here. He is talking about spiritual light and spiritual darkness. It is a spiritual condition that John or that Jesus is speaking to, that John is describing here in verses 9 through 11. And so Jesus here is implicitly suggesting that the disciples needed to deal with their spiritual condition of darkness by relying on the presence of light. He is the presence of light. Right? He's saying, You still have spiritual darkness, and that's why you fear. I mean, you see what happens here, right? They send word, Jesus, you got to come. Lazarus is in bad shape. The disciples are like, whoa. Lord, you said this wasn't going to end in death. He's just asleep. I mean, you remember what just happened. You were there, and those dudes weren't happy. They were ready to stone you. I don't think it's the best idea, Jesus, for us to go back, especially if Lazarus is just asleep. Jesus says, you guys are so spiritually dark. You are fearful of walking back in to Judea because of your spiritual darkness. You are totally missing the fact that the light is with you. And if you are walking with the light, you will not stumble. And so now don't you see the implications? He says this isn't going to end in death. Does he mean that the disciples won't die? No, actually, 11 of these guys will be martyred for their faith. But there's the eternal implications of walking with the light. John, you may be exiled. Peter, you may be crucified upside down. But because you are walking with the light, it will not end in death. And so you don't have to fear exile. You don't have to fear crucifixion. Stephen, you don't have to fear stoning because you are walking with the light. And the disciples desperately needed to deal with this inner darkness in order to understand this. The goal is for them to see their own darkness and to walk in the light. Now, again, this is a pretty dark situation that they're dealing with. And notice, Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to miraculously eliminate the hostility of the Jews. He doesn't say, listen guys, it's okay. When we roll into town, I'm going to brainwash them. They're going to forget anything ever happened and it's going to be all right. 
He doesn't say that at all. He obviously doesn't do that at all. Rather, He walks as the light into the dark situation. He acknowledges, yes, it is night in Jerusalem. It is spiritually dark in Jerusalem. And guys, when we get there, it's still going to be spiritually dark in Judea. But I am the light. And the light is going into the darkness so that the Father may be revealed and that the Son may be glorified. Listen, this should be perspective shattering for us when we think about darkness. Not not only in us, right? But also as we think about the darkness in our world. Yes, each one of us this morning desperately needs to allow the light of Christ to reveal the dark places in our hearts. We absolutely need to do that. But we also need to think about this as the darkness of the world. Can I say to you this morning, we should not fear the darkness of our culture, but we should walk into it with the light of Christ so that the culture might be transformed. I know, I know I'm running out of time, but I'm just getting started. So you, you listen hard, I'm going to preach hard. <laughs> because I believe with all of my heart, this is a word that we need to hear. So many of you, and I struggle with this too sometimes, are so fearful of this culture that we've totally shut ourselves off from it. And do you see the danger of that? Listen, Christian. If you are in Christ, then the light is in you and you are with the light. And you know what Jesus says? He says we're going to walk into dark places. We're going to take the gospel. We're going to take the good news into dark places. I'm not telling you the culture is good. I'm telling you it's awful. But you know what Paul meant when he said, I become all things to all people? It didn't mean that he became a prostitute to prostitutes. It didn't mean that he started stealing so he could become a thief to thieves. No, what it means is he, under, he said, I'm going to understand your culture. I'm going to understand what's going on. I'm going to understand your pagan worship, Rome, so that way when I walk through one of your pagan temples, I'll understand what's going on. I'll understand what I'm looking at and I'll be able to say, I perceive that you have a God that has no name. Let me tell you about a God with a name. When Paul says, I become all things to all people, Paul says, I'm making a commitment to take the light of the gospel into a dark culture. I'm not going to be scared of the culture. And here's the thing, I don't even know really how to explain this to some of you because in some ways it's even hard for me to explain. But there are some of you right now sitting in these pews that think the youngest generation, the generation that we need to be most concerned about reaching are the millennials. You missed them. The millennials are grown and have kids and those kids are called Gen Z. And I will promise you, (laughs) because I even struggle with this, and some of these folks that are teachers can tell you, 
Some of you could have a conversation with someone from Gen Z, and we've got some Gen Z kids in this room, and I would encourage those kids to even do this and just see what kind of expressions you can get. You could have a conversation with them, and I promise both of you would be speaking English, but you'd have no idea what they're talking about because of how much words have changed, right? And, you, and it's, 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 it's not even just language. It's, I mean, the, the space that they live in. Right? Most of you probably know what Facebook is, but when someone starts talking about Twitter or a TikTok, you got no clue. And I, listen, I'm not telling you, go home and get yourself a TikTok. Right? I, I don't need to see some of y'all on TikTok, okay? But here's my point. When you start thinking about how little you actually know about the culture that we're called to take the gospel into, you'll start realizing how unprepared we are as a church to actually take the gospel into that culture. I'm not talking about compromising what we believe. I'm not talking about compromising our theology. Paul never compromised his theology, but he became all things to all people. He understood Roman worship. He understood what it was like to trade by sea. He understood the business of a community. He understood the politics of a community. In some cases, he avoided them. In some places, he embraced them so that he could use them to teach the gospel. But Christians are not meant to live in fear. And we spend too much time fearing that the culture is going to creep in and it's going to be like contagious and it's going to get us. Right? It's going, it's going to be like the red tide. It's going to sweep in, it's going to kill all the fish and we're not going to have anything left. Listen, if, if you don't have the light, that will happen. You will become deceived and you will give way to liberal theology. But if you have the light if you are about the business of God's Word, if you're about making much of Jesus, if you understand what it means to love God and love people, if you understand what it means to make disciples, if you understand what it means to go into the harvest, then you're going to be willing to understand something about the field you're meant to work in. And I just want to challenge you this morning, how much do you actually know about the field? Because guys, I've got news for you. The field is changing quickly. The field that you grew up in doesn't exist in Weaverville anymore. The field that you grew up in doesn't exist in Mars Hill anymore. It's an altogether different field. It's an altogether different crop. But here's the good news, Christian. Christ is still on the throne and Christ is still the light in the darkness. And so I'm not telling you that you're going to have to go get a TikTok in order to do evangelism. And maybe your role is just to love on the people that do have a TikTok. I don't know. To raise them up. To raise up the young generation. But man, we get so caught up in protecting ourselves from the darkness. Church, hear my heart on this. We're not reaching it. Our pews aren't empty because the world is any more dark than it was a thousand years ago. Our pews are empty because we have stopped being willing to take the light into the darkness. And we've said the only way you're coming into our church is if you bring the light with you. And we're not coming to you because we're afraid of catching it. 
We're talking about a heart transformation, church. We're talking about really understanding what it means for God to be glorified. We're talking about really understanding what it means for Christ to be revealed. Let's, I, I've, got to, I've got to sort of land this plane here. And, and so let's, let's do that by just thinking for a few minutes about why Jesus describes Lazarus as sleeping. Why does Jesus call death sleep? What He's doing is He's showing the disciples a distinctly different perspective on death. And this is why we should have a distinctly different perspective on the culture. They fear death. These disciples fear death. That's the reason Thomas is like, all right, guys, let's just go and die with Him. Just get it over with. Tired of fearing it. Tired of being scared. They see death as the ultimate winner. It's why they don't want to go to Judea. But Jesus sees death much differently. And let's be honest. If you're reluctant to take the gospel into this culture, the real heart of the issue is you fear darkness wins. You don't have the confidence in the light you ought to have in the light. Jesus is saying death is no worse than sleep and there is no reason to fear sleep. This is, this is the reason he can say that he's glad Lazarus is dead. It's not because he dislikes Lazarus. It's because he knows that death is powerless before him. He can wake Lazarus up from death. Right? It, it is no harder for Jesus to get Lazarus to wake up from death than it is to get your kids out of bed to go to school in the morning. In fact, it's probably easier for Jesus to get Lazarus to come out of the tomb than it is to get your kids out of bed. It's not a problem for him. And I really do love Thomas's response. I, I laughed out loud almost every time I read this passage this past week. I mean, he's like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh. I can almost hear him. All right, guys, let's, let's just go. He's, he's, Jesus is hard-headed. He's going. We might as well just go. Let's get it over with. We're just going to go die with him. You know, Thomas has earned the nickname Doubting Thomas, not only for this account, but also because he doubts Jesus' resurrection. But if we're honest, that nickname is probably a little bit unfair. It should be more like Logical Thomas, right? I mean, he really is. He's logical. They just tried to stone Jesus, so the logical thought is, hey, Jesus, if we go back, you're going to get stoned again. He'd never seen anybody raise themselves from the dead, so the logical thought was that Jesus didn't raise, wasn't raised from the dead. I mean, it's not illogical to think that they might die if they go with Jesus up to Judea. Again, later on, Jesus will indeed die. And all 11 of these disciples are going to die because of their faith in Him. And so Thomas isn't crazy, he's logical. Here's the problem. The problem is that our logic can't account for the power and the plan of God. Human reasoning falls well short of the divine. And maybe one of the reasons you're hesitant to engage the culture as an individual or be a part of our church corporately engaging this culture with the gospel is because your logic can't account for the power of God. Without a doubt, because I struggle with this too. As I've been talking about engaging the culture, some of you have doubted if it's even possible this morning. 
You are logical. I'm a logical person most of the time. Autumn's not here, so I can say that without. My logic and your logic cannot account for the power of God. Cannot account for the power of God. Like Thomas, we are tempted to believe only what we can figure out. Only what we can rationalize. And so I wonder how often our logic keeps us from seeing God do something miraculous. Man, we talk about wanting to see revival. We talk about wanting to see people come to Jesus. We talk about wanting to see our baptistry full week after week after week. And yet we live in fear. We we live in a prison of our own logic, limiting what we think God can do. I wonder how often our critical thinking blinds us to the glory of God. How often are we critical at the cost of worship? How often are we critical at the cost of ministry? Listen, there's so much more in this story for us to uncover. But Jesus hits His disciples pretty hard in, these last, in, the, in, in verses 9, 10, and 11. And I think He hits us pretty hard too. We claim to love Jesus. We claim to be walking in the light. But are we showing it? Right? We say this all the time about all sorts of different things. In, in, in coaching, I would say this all the time to assistant coaches about players. Players could tell you that they understood the game plan. They could tell you that they understood the play. They could even walk you through the play, and I would always say, watch what they do, not what they say. And so if we're watching what you do, does it back up what you say about what you believe in Jesus? Thank you for listening to the Locust Grove podcast. We want to remind you to like and subscribe to the podcast so that you will be notified anytime we post a new episode. We pray that you have been encouraged and challenged by what you have heard in today's episode, and we look forward to joining with you again next week.